Hey, it's Jason Cunningham and welcome to Save My Business, a podcast dedicated to helping small businesses not only survive but thrive during tough times. And today in episode one, I've got two infamous, which means more than famous, uh, guests on our panel. The first is young Anthony Crowther, founder, CEO of New York Minute, one of the finest fast food outlets going around town and with 10 outlets across Melbourne. And his guest, co-star, None other than, than Mr. Robert Haddad, CEO and co-founder of business and personal wealth advisory firm, The Practice. Gentlemen, Ant, first to you, welcome. Thank you very much, mate. Very excited to be here. And Rob, uh, my business partner, good yes. to have you on board, sir. Yes, glad to be here. <laughs> now today, what I thought we'd really focus on, and, and the reason we've got you as our, as our guest, is this piece around staying relevant in business, particularly in a, in a market where the demand is shifting all the time. And your story at New York Minute, I mean, you've had, you had 10 years experience before you started the business and you've been in business for 10 years. Your story is amazing. I wonder if you could share with our listeners in 90 seconds or less, and no, I'm only joking, let's just share a bit of your journey and in the, in the pitfalls and the challenges that you've been through. Sure. So uh, when I started the business about 10 years ago, it's completely different to what it would be today mm-hmm. in terms of we had an in-store diners experience and that's the expectation you had to meet. We started very small, eight seats inside, eight seats outside. Uh, I was in Mooney Ponds and then consumer demand was obviously the growth chart for us. Mm-hmm. We got too busy in the store, so we built a bit bigger store. Now, yep. when you build a bigger store, you get a slightly bigger set of commercials, your, your expense sheet's a little bit bigger, your capital expenditure, et cetera, et cetera. Now, mm-hmm. we, we started at rents around about 25, twenty to $25,000 gross rents. Mm-hmm. And by the time we'd grown into a shopping center at, say, High Point Shopping Center and some big stores in, say, Carlton and Brunswick, we're up around the $200,000, $250,000 mark for rents. Wow. And that makes sense because the demand's there. Mm. Tell me this, sorry to interrupt. How did you feel, you know, your first business in Mount Alexander Road, Mooney Ponds? How much was the rent there? $20,000 gross rent. $20,000 a year gross rent to a store, uh, a flagship, uh, flagship sort of store in High Point down at, near the cinemas. How much rent were you paying there? $220,000. Wow. So that, that's a massive increase. Tell me what thoughts went through your mind signing that lease. How did you feel? Were you nervous or were you gung-ho? Tell me what was going on in your mind. Well, Jace, believe it or not, the process and the journey took care of that for me because mm. I went from a $20,000 lease to a 40000 on the next site. Mm. The next lease, I was on an $80,000. Mm-hmm. We got too busy in that space. Mm. The next one, we went to $120,000 mm. in Carlton. We mm. got too busy. So it only made sense for us to go to High Point mm. because we were too busy in every space we'd been in now. So mm. it was time for us to take on mm. one of those bigger centres. So I was probably, I felt comfortable doing it. Yeah, yeah. because I think, so what you're saying Ed, is that you, you started off with a small footprint, a small rent, the revenue and the model worked from a, a, a margins perspective. You up the ante, bigger shop, more revenue, it still worked and you keep you kept reinvesting in the bigger stores. So when you got to the high point store, you thought, oh, well, that's okay. I'll pay that rent because I'm going to make the revenues going to match. Yeah. And the bottom line is going to be a bigger number if I keep the same margins. Rob, would you argue that that's a similar trade across many businesses? As they grew, they just took a bigger premises? Absolutely. Because if, if we go back to what Ant was saying at, at, at the beginning, mm. was it was an in, in-store dining experience. Yeah. So it was built around what the customer wanted. And when Ant opened up 10 years ago, what the customer wanted was, 
wanted to take the family out or wanted to get out of the house, mm -hmm. go in, sit down, be comfortable. Um, and in order to be able to accommodate mm. that clientele, you needed to have more seats. Yeah. So, and excuse my ignorance, but when I think about uh, this in-store experience, fast food, takeaway type model, selling hamburgers, first comes to mind McDonald's, yep. then grilled, Hungry Jack's. How did you compete in a market like that with such powerhouse businesses that you were competing against? Uh, it's a good question. It's Macca's and that we don't really con we compete against because they're more of that convenience drive-through, mm -hmm. much quick. So they're more of a, um, a fast food option. Mm -hmm. We live in the QSR space, so definitely grilled's relevant yeah. to us. And Alma, for us, exactly the same as, I guess, grilled Nando's or Snits or anybody else mm -hmm. playing in that um, tier two QSR space, you would need to make sure you got a relevant product, you're priced well, mm -hmm. et cetera, and you've got a point of difference in the market. I'm and sure when we came taste in, is something to do with it as well. Absolutely. So yeah. the point of difference for us was we did Philly cheese steaks, pulled pork, brisket on a roll, we mm. smoked our own meats, made our own sauces. Mm. So we were a little bit different. So we, we offered the consumer something that wasn't existing in the market. Mm. Can I ask the same question of Rob? So Rob, similar question. When you first made the decision to leave your employer and start a business, an accounting firm, mm. uh, and an advisory firm, obviously there were big players in the market, KPMG, EY, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and then second tier, third tier, fourth tier. What did you say as your centerpiece, what was going to be the defining difference between your offering mm. and your competitors? Yeah, good question. So it was, it's about service because right. I think a lot of professionals think that their game is about being a good lawyer or being a good accountant. Mm -hmm. um, whilst, yes, you still need those skills, mm -hmm. you're in a service industry. Yeah. So it, being in a service industry means you answer the phone when it rings. Mm -hmm. When someone rings you, you common courtesy, you call them back. Yeah. So a lot of those bigger firms um, can't handle that kind of relationship piece. And so for me, it was about um, servicing clients um, and being available when they needed you, mm. um, taking on things for them, mm. doing things that are outside the norm. Yeah. And and, and obviously, you know, the, the convergence piece around the expectation of what they would come to you mm. for. So, you know, 24 years ago, really... You weren't speaking about accountants. You were talking about who's your tax agent. Yeah. The language has changed. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 the tax agent mm -hmm. got interchanged for the accountant. Mm -hmm. And the questions that the accountant was being asked are more around legal, mm. money, what do I invest in, yeah. how do I finance things, whereas 20 years ago it was about, well, can you do this piece of work for yeah, me? Yeah, and how quickly can you get it done? Yeah, so, so our industry has changed. Yeah. Not dissimilar to the, the, the food industry. Yeah. Well, it's worth the server, we're service based as well. Yeah. yeah. So one of our core principles for me was we don't have the word no in our business. Mm. That it helped us make sure that we would appeal to all of the needs of service the customers that walked into our stores. So let me walk you back, Ant. You, you started business off in Mooney Ponds, you grew to another store, you grew out to Carlton, you went to High Point, you went here, there and everywhere, and you grew your footprint. And it and the model was around relatively quick service food that tasted great and there was a lot of in-house dining. Yep, correct. Something changed. It did, 2017. What happened? Changed quick. Delivery, aggre delivery aggregators, so. A delivery aggregator is someone like Uber. Uber. So back, before, actually before Uber, there was Fedora and uh, Menulog. Mm-hmm. But they didn't really have a lot of the market space. Mm -hmm. Like the market share was still an in-store dining experience. Mm -hmm. When Uber come, they challenged the market significantly. Now, did you have sorry? Did you have any warning? Did you know this was coming? Did you see it from overseas, or 
what happened? Yeah, Jace, we did, but I reckon the food industry understood how quickly it was going to come. Yeah. So there was already marketplace here, mm. but every time they approached me, I wasn't interested at twenty eight percent commission because I didn't feel the need for the extra revenue at that commission. It didn't make sense on a P and L point of view at the time. So for our listeners, the twenty eight percent commission. Are you saying that the uh, delivery providers would charge you twenty eight percent of? So if you if you if someone made an order for a hundred dollars, they would charge you twenty eight dollars to deliver that. Correct. Not just deliver it. They provide the customer, mm. obviously the data. Yeah. And then we get the order through to the kitchen and they provide the delivery service as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a few segments that they provide yeah. rather than just Just a driver. Yeah. But you know what I don't understand now? You say in 2017, but we've been getting our pizzas delivered for a while before that. Mm. And that became the norm in the pizza space, didn't it? Rob, I think it's such a really important point. And a lot of people probably don't even consider that. Mm. Historically, delivery was centered around pizza and sort of maybe Chinese to a point, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's culturally sort of what we were familiar with. Mm-hmm. When you talk about familiarity and culture, it's really important to understand how quickly Uber shifted that culture and familiarity. Right. So once upon a time, there was those two options yep. would be sort of the norm. You know, yeah. you're going to wait maybe 45 minutes. You might make, or you might yeah. wait an hour for your food. Yeah. And that was okay. Yeah, like this yeah. was, but we sit down and we're watching the footy. You ordered an hour earlier. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you, you yeah. don't psychologically you're not even thinking about it the same to the same level you would be if you're sitting in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. However, what Uber did is they shifted that mentality very quickly because mm-hmm. they were able to reduce the time at which it arrived at your house by up to thirty minutes. Wow. Yeah. Up to forty minutes. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, what they turn around to the consumer and says, "You can said you can press one button, and open up." our platform mm. and then when you open up our app and get on our platform you can choose from any number of yeah. different food offerings as opposed to the pizza shop that had their own delivery Single. driver yeah so so what what i'm hearing is that we got accustomed to pizza our pizzas being delivered and we got accustomed to it taking an hour to get it. Yeah, whatever mm. the service was. Yeah. Mm. And that. because it didn't spread beyond say pizza and maybe a bit of chinese we thought it wouldn't spread. Mm. A bit like in the taxi space where there was talk of deregulation of Mm. the taxi licence industry. There was talk for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and Mm. people just got complacent that Mm. it's never going to happen. But then when it happened, it happened real fast. That's the problem. It happened to the food industry as quick as it happened to the taxi industry. Within eight months of Uber arriving, and they had some really key strategies, compared to some of the other delivery aggregators. Mm. I'll just quickly go through them because it shows you how clever the business structure is. For them to absorb the market share, what they did was they offered a no delivery fee. Mm. So when they came into the market, no delivery fee. They offered us as from a retail point of view, they offered us a 20% commission. Mm -hmm. So naturally it made sense to us to acquire more business and Mm. it's on a radius three kilometers to your store. It only made sense because it worked on a P&L. So no delivery fee, 20% commission, and what they didn't have at the time was a, d- a minimum order spend. When yeah. all of the other ones had a delivery fee, a yeah. commission that was nearly 10% more than that, yeah. and they had a delivery fee. Yeah. Mm. So the consumer hadn't found its way to that. Mm. All of a sudden, Uber came in and offered those serv- the Ubers offered those categories mm. on that service. We were getting cans of Coke delivered from our store wow. at the same price of what it would cost you to come and pick it up from the store. Yeah, right, yeah. So you imagine how quickly you change the mindset of that customer. Mm. And their so, behaviour. And, well, the, and that's the next point. So their mm. behaviour then, people say, well, what does that look like? Give me an idea what that looks like. Within eight months, 50% of our total company revenue was on their platform and we'd gone from 20 to 22 to 25 to 28% commission. Wow. In eight months' time. In eight months' time. So so let me ask you this question. So just so I'm clear, right? 
So your 50% of your revenue had shifted from people coming in and picking it up themselves to being delivered by a third-party provider and you were getting charged 30% com, that that would be a dramatic impact on your bottom line. And he's, you're 100% right, Jase. I'll show you how how significant that was. So mm. just say an average mm. business turns over a million dollars in revenue, total mm. revenue. Yep. If 500,000 of that, which is 50%, yep. is on a delivery aggregator at 30%, yep. it means you're giving $150,000 mm. to the aggregator. Yep. At $150,000 over your million dollars of revenue, mm. you've just added 15% to the bottom line of your P&L. Yeah, expense. That yeah. used to be profit. Yeah. Mm. So a business that turned over a million dollars that would once upon a time net somewhere in the vicinity of a around about the 150k mark, mm. you're giving that 150k to Uber now. So what I, what I through so my experience... We had massive challenges yeah. from a food industry point of view. It, it, it depends on which way you look at this, Rob, because yeah. what I've found in my experience is that as a general rule mankind, human nature, we don't change our behaviour unless we're forced to, right? Now, if you have a look at uh, various different behaviours of mankind, human nature, you know, for a lot of us, we put on a kilo or two every year, we don't do anything until you're significantly overweight, have a heart attack, have a health issue. You have uh, challenges in your relationship at home, nothing happens until you get divorced or something happens, you know? It's very rare that we change our behaviour because we have the discipline to do that, even though we know we should, until we are forced to change. And now, today's environment, you know, we've had conversations offline about this, that along come a thing called coronavirus or COVID-19, and because you've had the experience of having been forced to change your behaviour, you're actually sort of ready for this this change. Sure, we are. And... It's interesting that you explain it like that because it's radical, the mm. change. Mm. And that's what we didn't see, Jace. Mm. When we didn't put on a kilo every week for six months. Yeah. We watched eight months. You put pass on by. you put on forty kilos overnight. And we, you were forced to do something or have a heart attack. Mate, exactly. I turned around to my franchisees and said, Until I can fix this problem, nobody pays royalty payments. Yeah. We don't have marketing anymore at the moment. Yeah. We've got bigger problems that we need to worry about. Yeah. So our whole I guess our, we did a whole health check of the whole company mm. then. So imagine mm. triage and I, I, I considered our business being on, being in the Alfred, sitting in the emergency ward, yeah. bleeding to death. Mm. And I just surrounded the table with as many geniuses as I could. Now that's and what I wanted. None of us could come up with an answer as to what we're, and that was everybody in that space this, that I could think of that could help and nobody knew what to do. This is what I want to ask you both, right? This is what I want to ask you both. So there's a lot of people listening today that have been blindsided by the changing landscape that has been created by coronavirus. A lot of people have been blindsided by it. And it's across many industries, you know. It's not just hospitality. It's not just, uh, you know, events businesses. It's not just uh, indoor trampoline businesses. I, I spoke to a mate of mine who runs a panel beating business. And you think, hey, panel beating, that hasn't been impacted, but it has because no one's driving, no one's having car accidents, right? And therefore, I mean, not, car accidents aren't good unless you own a panel beating business, but you know th- that business has been impacted. My question to you is how, in, in your time when you got uh, blindsided per se by Uber, how did you have the mind space to make changes? And I ask the same thing to you, Rob, in your experience as an advisor to thousands of businesses, what are the first few steps one needs to do to see if they can not only survive, but then subsequently thrive through a change in circumstances in their business. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I, I think 
the, the first one is actually recognising you've got a problem. Uh-huh. And so I, I think in, in, in your instance, Anth, was that um, having the franchise model and being able to actually um, spend time analysing what the stores are doing, you, you have a tendency in a franchise model to be able to be more across the numbers. So with... With clients that... Why do you say that, Rob? Well, because you've got to report the numbers. Right, okay. And so... So you're being held accountable. You're held accountable. Yeah, right. So you, you have to be able to report the numbers mm. and then um, you've got head office who's actually looking at the numbers. Yeah. So what happens if you're not in a franchise business? How do you how do you follow that model then? Yeah, so th- that's where the risk is. Yeah. The risk is that it's, the, it's, it's up to the owner to have the discipline to understand where they're at. Yeah, right. And... In a lot of small businesses, the owner is knee-deep in the business doing it, doing it, doing it, uh-huh. that the paperwork for the tradesman, for example, mm-hmm. happens at night if he could be bothered. Yeah. He's got to get up at 5 o'clock the next yeah, morning, so it doesn't happen. Yeah, right. Okay. Right? So they're not actually analysing yeah. what's happening in yeah. the business to recognise yeah. there's a problem, i.e. I'm not making enough money here, yeah. or why am I not having any money left in my in my bank account. So you're saying to me the first two points is number one, recognise you got the problem. Number two, diagnose the problem. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. And so the the, the the problem with with that in itself is if you if the problem's going on in a business yeah. and you haven't been able to recognise it mm. month one, mm. month three, mm. month six, it's doubled month down twelve, mm. the, the problem's getting worse. Down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Right. So all of a sudden you you you've, you could by the time you actually recognise there's a problem, it could be too late. It could be too late. Right. Okay. So all right. In so, a lot of instances, it is. Too it late. is. Yeah. So you're saying, Rob, because one of the the benefits of being in a franchise model is you're forced to be accountable to the master franchisor, yeah. and you're saying. Even if you're not in a franchise, you should be being forced to be accountable. And you're obviously speaking from an accountant's bias, respectfully. I'm an accountant too, but you're saying that the numbers are very important. Absolutely. If you don't know where they are, you you, you can't massage your business to grow. Okay, so let me ask you both this question. So let's say you've managed to hit the first two stages. You've recognised the problem. You've diagnosed the problem. You've got your financials up to date. What's step three then? Mm. How do you then get to that point? Because, you know... I keep bringing business back to this uh, health mindset, right? And business has got to do, a lot of it's got to do with the six inches between your ears. How do you get yourself into the mind space and in the head space when you think that it's all lost because my revenues dropped from 100% down to 20% or my expenses in your instance have gone up? How do you get yourself into that mind space of clear thinking to develop a plan to move forward? Such a good way of putting this. (laughs) Because when you find yourself in a position of stress of that level, it's, it's very rare and emotional stress yeah. as well. It's, you don't, often most people won't have the emotional intelligence to find that presence of mind to mm. think through their, them um, positions with that sort of method. I guess I'm a bit lucky in this regard, Jace. I've sort of always had the ability under stress and under pressure to identify where we need to be mm. and how we need to be there. So, and that's what makes you a good football coach because a lot of coaches, and I, we know each other through football as well, a lot of coaches, see, I wouldn't be a good coach because I, I'd potentially panic in that scenario, whereas you have got that ability to have that level head and to be clear. So let me ask you this then. You've got that skill set. What about the, all the people that are listening that don't have that skill set? It's what? crucial to make sure that you surround yourself with people. that I, the, the consultants or the groups that you surround yourself with are mm. crucial to your outcomes. Mm, absolutely. And if you don't surround yourself with the right people, and I've said this many times. I've always, I keep saying this to everybody that I'm connected to. I say mm. to them, 
if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah, exactly. So if you need to place yourself in rooms where it's okay that you don't understand your accounting, go and get a really good accountant yeah. who understands your numbers. If you don't really know where you need to be with your leasing, it's not, no, there's nothing wrong with going seeking out independent help for someone that can help you with understanding what sort of commercial deal should I be engaging in here. And this is where this is where I reckon you guys can be amazingly helpful to a lot of the food, a lot of the you know different industries. This is um, see often Rob and you'll be uh, uh, you'll be one to attest to this. Often our strength can also be our weakness or our blind spot. And a lot of business owners are have the nous and the skill set to be like, hey I can do this on my own. But sometimes you need to drop your ego and lower your guard and bring in an expert. And people would say to me, GJ, you've built a, an amazing, successful business at the practice. You know, you're 24 years in. You've done so well. I said, no, I haven't. I said, we've done well. I know myself personally, I could never have built this business on my own. I always needed someone that I could bounce something off. And I think what we're, we're success, we're lucky is that Rob and I have got each other. There are a lot of business owners out there that don't have a business partner or a significant other to bounce things off. So true, that was me. Yeah. So Rob, let me ask you this question, right? It's easy when things are going well and you're winning new work and you're delivering to your customer and you're high-fiving. How do you change your mindset when your back's up against the wall? What is it that you've done that's enabled you to have a clearer head to develop a plan moving forward? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I don't fall into that panic category. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we started a business with no money mm. and no clients. Yeah. So uh, definitely day one, we had our back against the wall. Yeah, right. So that's not anything that's new to me, that, yeah. that phenomenon of yeah. being, you know, behind the eight ball or being mm. under pressure. Mm. Um, so that's not really the problem. I, I, I for think, you. For me. Yeah. Um, it, it's I'm really onto it early, yeah, right. And so a lot of the time, my issue is actually um, trying to convince others around me that there's a problem mm. because they can't see it yet. Yeah, 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 right. Um, and, and, and why do you think you're onto it early? Well, again, it's that numbers piece. Yeah. So it's that margin piece. It's that understanding what's shifting. Yeah. And it's also a bit of industry knowledge too 100%. about knowing mm. what's going on around mm. you and what's happening in your game. Mm. Um, and and when we're advising clients, a lot of the times where onto something before they are mm. and because they're still making their repayments on their Porsche mm. and they're still going on their two holidays a year mm. and, you know, the wife's getting the handbags and the mm. boat's fine, mm. they don't actually think they've got a problem. Yeah, It's mm. only until they are struggling to make those repayments that they're, that they're concerned what's going on here. That's exactly what you were saying before. Yeah, We wait until it's too late. Too late. Wait until it's too late. Absolutely. Can I make one point about... I was by myself mm. and I was fortunate as well, Jace, in this regard. I had a chap named Jesse Martin who used to do a lot of the marketing and advertising for mm. the state labour government at the time. Mm. And I used to see him going off to work when I was, and that's when I first opened Mini Pond. So I'm yeah. doing 100 hour weeks for less than a dollar an hour, <laughs> sleeping on a single bed mattress out the back of the shop. Yeah. So and everyone has to go through those challenges. And I think it's really healthy to go through those mm. challenges because that I think builds a resilience and a bit of grit in there that you need. Yeah. So Jesse, I was very fortunate with Jesse. Because I knew nothing about marketing, I knew nothing about advertising, mm. and he taught me so much. Mm. So mm. that consultant that you're talking about yeah. from an offer and a specialist in that field, because mm. be careful with consultants. I think there's a lot of people out there today that mm. offer a service. Um, don't but have, have no experience. 
So you've got to try and make sure that there's nothing wrong with going and seeking out five different, you know, different consultants mm. before you choose the one that you think fits you the most. If there's one thing so I can, crucial. if there's sorry, if there's one thing I can share that I think is common among, amongst you both. Now, I've known Rob for 42 years, and I've known you for over 10 years. And if there's one thing I think is quite similar, is the fact that you uh, you can leave your egos at the door. Now, what I mean by that is. Um, if people don't know you as well as I know you both, people might say that your egos are healthier than most. But in actual fact, you both do have that ability to leave your ego at the door. And Rob, I, I turn to you on the back of what Ant has just said around surround yourself with great people like he did with Jesse, the marketing guru. Tell me and share with the listeners, what have you done and who have you surrounded yourself with? What other mentors? I know when you, we first went into business, you maintained a strong relationship with your uh, previous employer. Yeah. T- tell me, who else have you done that with and, and where do you draw inspiration and knowledge from? Yeah, well, I think that it's one of those things that um, people sometimes underestimate mm. about who's around you. I mean, yeah. in, in the early days, you know, we started a business with no money and no clients, yeah. yet I'd have uh, clients of my previous employer that wanted to join us and I wouldn't take them. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't want to be poaching his clients. Mm. Now, um, 24 years on, I still break bread with him. Yeah, we had lunch a few weeks ago. It's great, and that that relationship to me was so important because mm. um, not only was he a mentor, but he was a bit more like a father figure. Yeah, who actually wanted to see me succeed. And along the journey, I was often faced with issues and problems that I had no idea mm. on on how to solve, you know, to solve, or even had any ideas how to get through. Um, being able to pick up the phone was way more valuable mm. than taking that client who wasn't happy with him or thought they could get it cheaper with me. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely one. Um, but you, you hear it so often um, with successful people when you delve deeper into them around, you know, building a team around them. It, yeah, it's accounting, it, mm. it's lawyers. It can sometimes be your competitors as well. And I think that sometimes people mm. forget that your competitors can actually be your allies. Yeah. Because, you know, it's not like you're taking food out of each other's mouths. The marketplace is so big yeah. that you can actually learn from each other. Yeah, and it's such a fantastic point. Yeah, isn't, isn't it? it? Isn't it? Oh, yeah. Most of my learnings come from my competitors. Yeah, Absolutely. Fact, nearly all of my learnings come from yeah. my competitors. Yeah. yeah. Whether it's deliberate collaboration or not, it's, yeah, there's yeah. so much well, to learn. Often it's not collaboration because yeah. I don't want to share. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, just yeah. the ability to understand why are they doing so amazingly well. Can I make a point just on that? Because this is really crucial. When I, when, if we go back to when Uber really sort of, when that 15% became as a category on the bottom line of our PL, mm. we had our first real challenge. Yeah. yeah. In this, since we started New York Minute, mm. all of a sudden then I started thinking to myself, wow, mm. we've got some serious challenges here. I've got franchisees that have got their mortgages on the line. I've got wives in front of me crying and I'm mm. trying my best to say, all right, what's a solution here that I don't have? Yeah. That's, that's, see, not that's to say so that I'm daunting. not going to seek it out, but mm. I sit there and say to them this, if I can't fix this, you'll pay me nothing and yeah. I'll shut the franchise down because yeah. there's not much else I can do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wasn't satisfied with that. So my no. journey started to say, well, how do I fix this? How do I fix, how do I absorb a 30% commission and put back that 15% that's been lost? Mm. It was in, it was the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life, but I'm glad I did it because mm. mm. we thrive in that industry today. So tell me, what did you do? Believe it or not, what I did was I looked at a lot of the other food service providers in my category. And Nando's had closed 55 stores and Subway had closed like 110. And then I'm looking at um, 
you know, Benny's Burgers, which is, you know, we've yeah. got some celebrity chefs that have got yeah. some fantastic products and yeah. fantastic models, but yeah. they're just at the wrong time. Mm. Yeah. It's the only problem. You've introduced a model at the wrong time and it's about the model. Mm. And the, pro- not, the product was fantastic. And then so I'm looking at all these different competitors and I'm thinking they're all in the same space as me. It's not exclusive to us. We've all got the mm. same challenge. Everyone I speak to stumbled across the Domino's. I'm yeah. thinking to myself, it's a good share to own. How share does Domino's <laughs> record record share profits and record share holdings while the rest of the food industry is kneecapped? Yeah. Mm. So it made me just dig into Domino's. Yeah. And I am talking really digging into Domino's. Because yeah. I don't have to dig far when I look at the food. No disrespect to Domino's, amazing company, but mm. let's be honest, their food's not the greatest. Yeah. I would I would say that, you know, and I studied nutrition, so I wouldn't mm. say. Mm. But, yeah. I'm a great one. What do you do? Do you guys want to put this together? You have a food at the table with the kids. So what do you do? So anyway, I'm not criticising Domino's because I love them. I fell in love with Domino's very mm. quickly. I'm in love with the I share lo- price. Well, <laughs> I looked at I looked at the reasons as to why they are. Mm. For the last five years prior to Uber arriving, they had been talking convenience while we were. The rest of the food industry, we're all talking about the providence of their food and we're mm. all telling the same story. Yeah. Our marketing and our advertising, we're all down the same lane. Mm. Yeah. We're, you know, different products, similar, similar, like mm. for like, you know, much of an actress, all about service, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm but, like- But five years before, they were all on convenience. Yeah. Um, Domino's, you Domino's, mean? yeah. 100%. Mm. So Domino's had started that journey of, yeah. of mm. talking to their customer mm. all about convenience. So they were the number one delivery platform in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then Uber arrived. Domino's for about the first 12 months of Uber being in this country, not on their platform. Mm. So it tells me maybe we set up our own delivery network. Mm. I did that. Couldn't sustain it. We don't have 33,000 drivers on the road in Victoria. No. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the competition for the rates, they've got subcontract drivers. Mm. We've got award yeah. rates. So yeah. So you couldn't handle just, 30 orders at the same time and get it them. It was the impossible. Yeah. So logistically, it was a nightmare. It just didn't work. So Unless they all lived it. in the same street. But anyways, yeah. 100%. So, yeah. We, so we scrapped that idea. So then I was, it came down to going, okay, well, Let's not try and be dominoes that way because we can't do that. Yeah. A, and this is where I was talking about culture and familiarity. Mm. They were still, dominoes were providing a service within 15 to 30 minutes. Everybody else in the delivery space was providing a service that took 30 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes mm, and yeah. that was okay. Yeah. What Uber came in and did, they come in and did the dominoes, but for any product you like mm. on that platform. So that was where our first big challenge was. So I was like, try to fight off Uber at the start. Then I had to learn to love them quickly. Yeah. Found Domino's, which was a blessing. Yeah. Because Domino's taught me they're all about convenience, call to action. If you have a look at their website, mm. compared to any other food retailer website, mm. completely different. Yeah. Everything's about call to action. So then I looked at it and I said, all right, so how do we become the Domino's of burgers? Mm. And we need to become very quickly. Because right now I've got people sitting in front of me crying. Yeah, losing money. Yeah. So what I did was I put my expense sheet. I actually, how's the best way to put this? So... We looked at our P&L and it didn't work. Yep. That, pr- that model needed to change significantly. So mm-hmm. I said, all right, what's the future model look like? The future model for me said, it can't be New York Minute anymore. So if we imagine the cell in the middle of our revenue stream now is no yep. longer New York Minute, that's Uber. Yeah. Because Uber obviously provide the customer, they provide the marketing now and they provide the delivery service and that's what the customer wants. Yeah. So that's what they told me. So once I'd done that, I looked at it and I said, okay, let's put Uber in the middle and then New York Minute just becomes a revenue stream. Mm-hmm. So then I developed a couple of other f- um, retailers, you know, I, um, I established a couple of new brands yep. yeah. and ran them out of the same kitchen. So that allowed, allowed me then to have ah, that cell divided in cost. half 
or allowed me to sell, divide that sell in half and have uh, additional revenue streams. So that was the first. Well, and what were the fix. other? What are the other products or the other offerings that you put? Oh, we just looked at the industry and had a look at what what, what spaces. Chicken. Were in. We, yeah, we had a look at the industry and had a look at what spaces lived in that market, and yeah. we we just made sure we played in that space. Yeah. Now me being a chef and staying, and I, I actually build these stores from the ground up. Mm. I knew how to introduce these products into the, into that kitchen mm. without increasing the labour because that yep. was crucial. Yeah. Mm. There's no point introducing Back to your the new profit revenue. Hundred percent. Mm. So once we divide that sell in half, the other side was an expense sheet. So what we did was we had a health check of our expense sheet, everything from our commercials through to our pantry list. We renegotiated every single element of our expense sheet on the other mm. side. So by the time we finished with the model, we came back to a model that again it's all about Uber in the centre that now thrives under a delivery. Category. So you put that 15%, that got taken off your bottom line, you put it back on your bottom line. Correct. Yeah. And so, and we, But there's one problem here, Rob. Yeah. When we had five stores, we had 120 staff. We now got 10 stores and we've got about 45 staff. Right. Yeah, right. So wow. there's bigger challenges to come out of this. Yeah. You know, like, but interestingly enough, both of you have spoken about the same thing, but using different language. Yeah. Both have spoken about the financials. Always the numbers. Yeah. Always. So it always starts with the numbers. And uh, interestingly enough, both of you have spoken about the importance of providing the service to your customer. Well, we just heard a story yeah. that was about learning what to do from his competitors mm. and learning what not to do Absolutely. from his competitors. And and a lot of the times the blessing is both ways. Couldn't agree more. But I, I, I think the other thing that I found quite interesting is the <laughs> old management accounting uh, uh, approach to businesses is using a thing called the balanced scorecard, which focuses on the four pillars of your business. Your people, your processes, your customers, and your financials. I think what's interesting also is you've spoken about another party, and that's your stakeholder. The people you pay money to, and in your case, Uber. It's a stakeholder. Not Often business owners will look at their customers and reward them. They'll look at their people and reward them, and they'll refine their processes, but they don't necessarily look at the people that they pay money to. Now, Rob, I know you're big on this, particularly around the stakeholders at the practice being the IT providers, mm. the landlord, and the relationship you've got with them. Can you just share with our listeners the importance of working those relationships yeah. and being on the same page with your stakeholders? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that um, just like we pride ourselves on relationships with our clients, mm. that our suppliers are stakeholders as well. Yeah. And, you know, even in our business, yeah, it is the landlord. Mm. He's a key stakeholder in our business. Mm. You know, we, we've gotten to the point where we're very fortunate enough that we know them and know them well, yeah. that we, we actually break bread together. Mm. And I often get asked about how can he improve the building. Yeah. It's not because he sees me as some expert, but because we've got a, we've got a relationship of trust now. That's what I wanted to talk about, the relationship so, piece. And, Rob, it's no surprise that this is a 10-storey building and we've got the naming rights of the building. It's known as the practice <laughs> well, building. Yeah. that sort of helps. And yeah. it's, you know, that but it's based on your relationship with the landlord. It wasn't It wasn't the sole objective of being able to build a relationship no. was to get our name on the building. Mm. It was it was about building a relationship because we see them as key stakeholders. Just like we want to build a relationship with all our suppliers because guess what? We're here to help each other. Yeah. Right. They've got a business and we've got a business. And... What, so much has come, you know, just out of that one relationship. Mm. Um, you know, especially when it comes to feedback. So again, if you if you've got a relationship and it's valued on trust, you'll ask for feedback because you know you're going to get honesty. Yeah. Right now, an example of that in this instance, especially with a landlord, was asking about the building. Yeah. And so I gave some feedback that 
We've got the beautiful parks around us here, um, the facilities, the end of trip facilities for people that ride their bikes. There's no bike shed. Mm. It's unsafe. People don't want to ride their bikes. Mm. They can't Showers. ride and exercise at, at lunchtime. Yeah. Um, and our end of trip facilities, they don't cater for it. Mm. Well, a complete renovation was done mm. on end of trip facilities. And strangely enough, our team and our staff love them mm. and use them. But more importantly, there is not one vacant, not one vacant piece of square meterage in this building. Yeah. So there's two people that have won out of that. Yeah, that's right. And also now we use it a part of our EV, our employee value proposition when we talk to our new team members that want to join our business. State of the art end of trip facilities is a big selling point for the new team members. Which is what Anthony was talking about yeah. in that, you know, when you're talking about supplies. Mm. They're partnerships. Yeah, mm. you're in partnership with them. It's a fantastic you, philosophy. Absolutely. Mm. If you if you get a Crucial. batch if you get a batch of meat that wasn't the best, rather than going to look, if you've got a relationship with them, yeah. wouldn't they expect for you to make a telephone call? It's yeah. such a fantastic relationship. Can we stay just on the landlord for one sec? Yeah. Because the landlord in this space of our delivery network and the crippling of the food industry. Yeah. He was, he had a lot at stake as well. Oh, yeah. So he had an enormous amount of exposure. Mm. So in those conversations, which I explained on the opposite mm. side from an expense sheet point of view, I explained to the landlord ways in which he can keep his his square meters mm. by just showing him ways to adjust the model. No single site, single revenue stores anymore. Yeah. Let's co-tenant them. Yeah. Let's share. Let's find a way to keep your spreadsheet where it needs to be, but not put too much pressure on us. And that's why when you're talking about the sharing of IP and, the sh- and IP might be just the landlord and the business owner. Yeah. That's one of the partners. And then the distributor. You've got to bring the distributor mm. into this conversation mm. as well and figure mm. out ways that we can make sure that the distributor gets his mm. earn as well because everybody needs to eat. Absolutely. And those relationships are so crucial. But if you can get them all in the same room and have that conversation, you'll find that, which is no different than consultants, yeah. you'll find that you'll always end up in a far better place if you're thinking not just about yourself. And I, I just, this is a really, we're coming to the end of our podcast and this is a really pertinent point. I want to touch on this and there's one other question I'm going to ask you both. Sure. Um, but this point, we, we've been at the, at the forefront of having conversations with a number of clients, thousands of clients over the last three and a half months during this financial crisis and economic crisis that was caused by a health crisis. And, um, watching it from a distance, but also at the front line, I, I, I've seen our behavior Mankind's behaviour changed from right at the start when the market got belted, and um, you know the market came off. The Australian um, share market came off thirty-five percent, and people were making contact with us about their own investments, and it was very me, me, me. A few weeks later, we we're in the supermarket, and we were quite barbaric and fighting over toilet paper and baked beans and two-minute noodles. Then the next wave was about we're in this together. How do we share the load? And I've heard that come through quite a bit with both of you. It's about this whole we're in this together. It's about a relationship piece. You know, not only, it's not so much how do I make the most money, it's how do I help my franchisees? How do I work with my landlord? How do I work with my stakeholders and my providers and my team members? And knowing that if there is a anything, it's got to be win-win. It can't be win-lose or lose-win. Well, it comes back to that focus on what you're going to give yeah. and what you want to get will come. And, and, and what we're hearing okay. about here in summary is what you've heard from Anthony, the story, is I don't, yeah. want, to, I don't want the blessing... That, and the message to get lost. We have a growing business yep. that gets built and scaled up yeah. for a model that says the customer wants to come and sit and eat in my home. 
Yeah. My home being your store. Yeah. So therefore, I need 100 seats. I need 150 seats. Yeah. And I, I call it the million dollar fit out. Fit out a commercial store, million bucks. Mm. Right? So I've gone from that model yeah. to no one wants to come and eat in my home. They want to eat in their own home. Yeah. And now I've got 150 seats that are empty. That are empty. And all you have to pay commercial rates for those square meters. Yeah. Absolutely. And you're, usually you're locked into those tenancy agreements with... Yeah. Director's guarantees. Yep. Yeah. Usually, what's attached to your de- director guarantees, your personal guarantee. Mm. Your home. So we can show a lot of people the maze at yeah. which we can show them how to sidestep a lot of these landmines yeah. in the future mm. because now there's opportunity. Yeah. But more importantly, the people that are in this position now that are struggling, I reckon they're the ones we can help the most. Yeah. And, and 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 this is why the landlord's important. Hundred percent. Because it's crucial. It's crucial because. What, we, what the landlord will be re-educated on, and I think you'll see this in the future, mm. whereas it'll be the smart ones that get onto it early. That 200 square metres that used to be the one shop with 150 mm. seats, mm. the landlord, we need your cooperation to split that into two. Or three. Or, or three. Or five. Mm. Where you're still going to get your top line rent, but you're mm. going to get it from three or four different with sources. With much less exposure. You've mitigated mm. his risk. There you yeah. go. If you lose one tenancy, it's always easier to lease out a space for there 40 grand. Go than it is to lease out a space for 140 grand. There's so many conversations that need to be had. We should have another conversation about the industry, won't we? Oh, yeah, (laughs) uh, no doubt we will. Um, I'm going to leave us with one final comment, if I can, and we'll sum it up. My experience tells me that most successful people that you get to meet have always had a challenge or two and have been faced with adversity. And typically, uh, there's a saying... Nothing is ever as bad as it seems right now, nor will it be ever as grand as you think it might be in the future. And there's, you know, sayings that have been thrown around of late, you know, every cloud has a silver lining and all that sort of stuff. I, I wouldn't mind touching on one or two personal experiences if you're comfortable in sharing them at some times where you face some real adversity. And, and I'm going to start with Rob because I, I know Rob pretty well. But I know Rob before his 21st birthday his father passed away. And um, it's a challenge for a lot of people, for any person to lose, uh, you know, your father or a parent. And Rob touched on it earlier when he spoke about his previous employer, whose name is Peter, was like a father figure to him. And at the time, and no doubt right now today, Rob wishes his dad was here with us, no doubt. I'm a person that's lost a parent and I understand the pain that that is. But I lost a parent at 45, not at the age of 20. And I, I wanted to talk to you about that, Rob, and, and ask you, you know, what have you drawn on from that experience that's helped shape the man and the business owner and the entrepreneur and the leader that you are today? Oh, the, the fight. The, 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 you know, it wasn't just the, the, the memories of and, and the age I was at. It was what, was what actually happened after that had gone. Mm. We had a mortgage. Yeah. And we had one breadwinner in our family that was my dad, yeah. who was no longer with us. Yeah. So when you spoke earlier about issues in business, mm. and I, I was at 20 years of age, and mm. I, I was I had a mortgage, mm. I had a younger brother, and I had a mum who was you know at the peak of her life, you know early 40s. Yeah. But also, so, Rob, share the fact, and I, I'm delving a bit into Rob's personal life, so just cut me off if, if I'm going too far. But also, uh, uh, the culture that your parents grew up in overseas and when they came to Australia, right, that your father did everything. Yeah, dad did everything and being the oldest, that sort of gets ha- handed to me. So um, when you talk about the experience that comes with it, back against the wall. Mm. So I had a mortgage. 
at the age of 20. Yeah. And I had um, a, a mother who was a cancer survivor, couldn't work. Mm. Um, so we had no income coming in. And English was her second language. English was her second language. Um, and I had a brother who was still going through university. Yeah. So pretty much it was about survival. Yeah. And so it's easy for me, you know, having that as a background at the age of 20, mm. to look at a business mm. and be in survival mode. Mm. Like I actually don't know any other way mm. um, and therefore recognising problems and coming up with solutions is mm. pretty easy mm. for me because mm. at a very young age I had to work out how we're going to keep our home. Mm. Mm. Um, so When you're supposed to be enjoying your life. When I was supposed to be enjoying my life, yeah. yeah. So Most of us are. At, at the age of 20, yeah. Mm. So, um, Real adversity. A- mm. Absolutely. And, and, and that's why I don't panic in those situations yeah. because of, there's been much worse. Yeah, at the age of 20, you're faced with losing your family home. Yeah, yeah. Losing the, lost dad yeah. and losing the family home yeah. and, you know, trying to keep food on the table. Yeah. And so, you, you know... And you and your brother are big eaters. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and so, the, you know, we're no stranger, no stranger to hard work and uh, no stranger to adversity. But there's so many blessings that come out of it. Yeah. And, and what you've heard today from Anthony is the blessing that come out mm. of it, that, mm. you know, now there's a model that he's been mm. able to work mm. through Mm. That that works, mm. um, and and share it, and absolutely, and perhaps you're you're like the Dominoes in a sense that Dominoes were ahead of the curve. Mm. They were selling convenience before they were selling pizzas. Yeah, and now all of a sudden, hopefully, you're ahead of the curve, and well, well, that's, that's by the time your competitors be. work it out, that's mm. where we want to be. Dominoes, believe it or not, during COVID, hired two thousand new drivers. Yeah, and there wouldn't be another food operator that had done that. No, no. no. during COVID, we're twenty twenty five percent up. So I'm blessed and I'm grateful and I'm. Look, if you want to ask me just very quickly about two, one or two real challenges for yeah, me, Jay. So yeah, I reckon, king. Uh, dear wife separated. That's why I started New York Minute. Yeah. I wanted to leave a legacy for me kids. That's why I was happy to do the whole start again process. Mm. And that was enough for me. Just leaving a legacy behind for me children to know that sometimes when things don't turn out the way that you expect them to turn out, that's yeah. okay. Yeah, and yeah. yes, there might be a time when you're doing quite well for yourself and then all of a sudden you might find yourself in a position 12 months later where you're not probably doing all that well for yourself and you've got to have the grit and the grind to be able to get through that process. Can, can I, grit, can I, very can good I, word. Can I just touch on that a little bit more? Sure. And just let me know if I'm crossing the line. So you separated from your wife and that was what gave you the impetus to go into business? No, I was already in business for 10 years prior. So yeah. we, we, I closed the business down when we separated. So right, yeah. it was more about starting again and teaching mm. the kids to look for the... It's interesting. Whenever we have failures in life, we look at the failure, but we don't look at the opportunity that's on yeah. the other side. Yeah. Because we're so emotionally attached to something. I don't really get that emotionally attached to that sort of stuff because I'm mm. too driven. Yeah. Mm. And I wanted the kids to know that you can still be with a partner for 19 years like I was, and that to me is considered success. It's not mm. a failure. Mm. Yes. So what am I going to do with the rest of my life? That's what matters. What yeah. legacy are the kids going to see now that they're grown up? Mm. And the second challenge, Jace, mm. Uber Eats. Now mm. I love them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, a thriving business that was yeah. on its knees. Yeah. And now, you know, like I'm just ha- happy that I'm, and I'm very grateful that I can share experiences. Yeah. But more than anything else, navigate people's pathways through this mm. ever challenging food industry that's changing so rapidly. I, I dare say there's going to be a lot of people listening to this podcast about yeah. um, that are going through a difficult time in the food space mm. because hell of a lot. You know, there's a lot of them that we've been speaking to yeah. um, that don't know the way forward. Um, but I think that hopefully they can draw some solace and some positivity mm. out of that story that, you know, it's not as bad as you think it is. Yeah. You just can't see the other end of it yet. Well, that's right. And I, I think not just for the food uh, industry, I think for a mm. lot of industries. And I, 
I, I just want to thank you both for being our first guests on Save My Business podcast. I, I, and um, your story's amazing. Uh, and, uh, and Rob, you know, you've been a lifelong friend, uh, godfather to my kids, business partner, confidant, best man at my wedding. I mean, it's pretty much done everything. That is a wonderful story. Yeah, <laughs> it is a great story. Robbie and I met at the age of five. Uh, he yes. stopped beating me up when I was 32, which is great. Uh, we, we went to the same primary school. We went to the same high school. We went to the same university. We played footy against each other. We went into business together. I'll never forget, on the 1st of December 1997, we got a little shop front uh, in Ascot Bar Road in Mooney Ponds. We're paying $180 a week in rent. We signed a two-year guarantee and we thought we'd signed our lives away. And fast forward today, you know, we, the business is a lot bigger and a lot stronger. And I guess in summing it up, what I found intriguing uh, and enjoyable was the messages, although spoken from different mouths and through a different paradigm and a different set of eyes, the messages have been the same. It's around the importance of focusing on your financials, irrespective of whether you've got an accounting degree or not. It's about holding yourself to account, whether you do that yourself or have a third party hold yourself to account. It's around who you surround yourselves with, the ability to have a clear head. And if you haven't got a clear head, get someone else to help you get a clear head. And looking at the challenge, the challenge may not necessarily be the challenge, but it's the opportunity. Ann Crowther, CEO of New York Minute, thank you very much. Robert Haddad, CEO of The Practice, thank you very much. Pleasure, Chance. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Well done, boys. Inspiring. Thanks, Ian.